I want to start by sharing a story with you, and I think I have shared this with you before, but it's a story that has been with me for more than 30 years, and I think about it at least once a month. So if I've shared it before, I'm sorry, but I was young, maybe first or second grade. I was in our backyard, jumping on a trampoline with a friend. His name's Mario. His family lived a couple of doors down. Mario's family had recently started attending our church, and the day before, my parents had told me that Mario's dad had been saved. He was going to be baptized. Now, I grew up in a Christian home. I understood the language. Saved, baptized, these things made good sense to me. So here I am in the backyard jumping on the trampoline with Mario. And I said, your dad got saved. And he just looked at me, confused trying to interpret what he had heard. And I saw the wheels turning, and he asked a question that makes sense. He said, save from what? I didn't expect that question. I thought we were all on the same page. So I did what you do when someone seems to not have heard you. You say it slower and louder, right? <laughs> he... God saved, which didn't help at all. We kept jumping. I was confused. He was confused. A little while later, another question came. Did he almost die? Think about the situation. Here's a kid down the street telling you your dad must have been in some kind of danger. He was rescued. And you know nothing about it, but the kid two doors down seems to have the story. He was confused. I was in over my head. So as you do at seven or eight, you change the subject and you keep jumping. But now, 35 plus years later, here I am, still thinking about that conversation. And the first thing I think about, the reason I think about it so often is because we use weird words sometimes. We take words and we, we, say, we use them in ways that the world doesn't understand, that people that don't know the Bible don't understand. For all this time, I have a hard time having just a normal conversation and saying someone got saved because I'm always fearful that that won't translate. But more important than correcting the way sometimes I speak, that interaction has become a reminder to me of how many people are going about their lives and have no idea that they're in need of being saved. They don't know they're in danger. Maybe you're here and you, these last four minutes have not been helpful to you at all because you're like Mario, saying, what in the world did the guy need to be saved from? Well, this is what we believe. When we say that someone got saved, that's our in-house way. This is the way the Bible talks about us being rescued by God because the Bible says that we're all born as sinners. And we not just sinned against one another, or against our conscience, but we've sinned against God, who's holy and perfect and just, and who must punish sin. What do we need saving from? The Bible says we need saving from God. Because He punishes all those who have sinned against Him. The Bible also says that the one that we are say, need to be saved from is the one 
who can save us. We all need to be forgiven. We all need to be reconciled. And when that happens, when someone's forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, that's something worth celebrating. Because it means someone's eternity has been changed. This morning, we have a big tub of water because this is the way that we celebrate these kinds of things. This is the way Jesus tells us to celebrate, that when someone is taken from darkness to light, from enemy of God to friend of God, from deserving of wrath to a beloved child, we celebrate through baptism. So in here, in just a little while, Nicholas and I, we're going to get in here, and I'm going to put them under the water. Which is a reminder that our Savior, the one who makes our salvation possible, Jesus came and he died. And those of us who were in him, we've died with him. And then we're raised, just as he was raised from the dead, we're raised to new life. And if that still doesn't make sense, I hope it makes more sense by the time we're done this morning. What we do in this water, it's a picture of what Jesus did and what happens to us when God forgives us of our sins and reconciles us to God. It's a great picture, and it's important, and today is a day of celebration with, with Nicholas in particular, but what I want us to consider this morning is that any time someone gets in the water, this is significant for all of us. It's a reminder to all of us, especially those of you who are here and are in Christ and have been in water like this before, this should be a significant day for you. Because we get to pause together and say, I needed saving. I needed to be rescued, and God has done that for me. This morning we're in Ephesians 2, which you know we've not been in Ephesians. This is kind of a standalone sermon. And we're in Ephesians 2 because I thought this morning would be a good time for us to just really consider carefully why we needed saving who saved us, and how we were saved. We have a lot to be thankful for. My hope is that our time in Ephesians 2 would remind us that we once were lost. And for those who are in Christ, we have been found, we have been saved, and this is our story. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I hope you have your Bible or you'll find one. Ephesians 2, we're going to read verses 1 to 10. It says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We believe that everything he says is true. Which means this is true of where we are, where we were, and what God has done. Before we jump into the passage, this is one of those texts that we could spend weeks unpacking. And I'm going to try in the next 30 minutes or so to walk us through these 10 verses. And if at any point you feel like we're in the weeds, here's the two things that I hope you'll be considering this morning. If your mind needs to wander, go to these things. How desperately we needed to be saved. We're going to consider this morning that we were in a position of danger, and you may not have felt it or known it or recognized it. But church, we were in a place of danger. We needed saving. So we want to consider this morning what that place was. And then we want to consider the incredible mercy and grace of God. That he would save people like us. Those are the two things. How much we needed saving and how merciful God has been in saving us. We come to a passage, and you should know it's a passage written to Christians. Paul is writing to a church, a a group of people like us. A people who are in a relationship with God. So if you don't have a relationship with God, you have to know that this is being written to people who do. In chapter 1, he gives praise to God because he acknowledges that before time began, God had a plan to save sinners. He recounts God's plan and his mercy and his grace. And then we get to this chapter 2, and he starts telling the church who they were and what God has done. He tells them their story. Tells us our story. He starts by describing the condition we all were in before Christ. This is something that's often misunderstood. And even within the church, I fear that this can get minimized or softened. See, if you talk to your neighbors or your coworkers and just ask them, what do you think is at the core of people? Most people, just think about the average guy on the street. We're not talking about the the guy who's committed some atrocity. If you just think of the average person, most people would say, that person, most people, are essentially good. At our core, we're good. And, And we're born good, and we're born, all of us, in right standing with God. And the goal of life, from many people's perspective, and maybe you've thought this, maybe you think this. I'm born basically good, and as long as I don't mess it up, too bad, I'll be in right standing with God. And sure, along the way, there's going to be need for improvement because none of us are perfect. And in those situations, if we just get back to who we really are, look deep enough within ourselves, find that good that is there, 
then we can get back on track. And that's not a very uncommon way of thinking. It may be, in fact, the prevalent way of thinking. We're all essentially good, and if things go bad, the goal is to get us back to good. The problem is that's not even close to the way the Bible describes our situation. We should be sympathetic towards that way of thinking. We should be kind towards it. We should also recognize that the Bible says something very different and help others to see. Consider what, where he starts. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I've told you this is a story about us, and now I want to tell you that this passage is really about God. <laughs> Hopefully you'll understand that as we go. It's a passage primarily about God and what God has done for us. And I think we see that even in this first part of verse 1, because here we're told that we start off spiritually dead. Now, we're all alive physically, but the, the Bible tells us here that we were spiritually dead which means before the work of God in our lives, we had no life. Which is significant because dead people can't do much. In fact, those who are dead can't do anything for themselves. And this is what we're told here. Every person is born spiritually dead. And what caused the deadness? It says we were dead in the trespasses and sins. And we can go to other places in the Scripture to build out this line of thinking that we're all born sinners, and as sinners, we are spiritually dead. It's not that we're affected by sin, or hindered by sin, or crippled by sin. We're told that because of our sin, we are spiritually dead, which means we need someone outside of ourselves to give us life. What we see here is the first part of the need. Why did we need saving? Why did we need rescuing? Because we were dead. Because spiritually we had no life. Which begs the question, how do people who are spiritually dead, how do they live? I know we're mixing metaphors here. But what does it look like for a person who's spiritually dead to go through life? And he unpacks that in the next couple of verses. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, the way most people think about human nature is that we all start off relatively good. That's our default position. But here we see that our default position is anything but that. He, he tells us that those who are spiritually dead, those who are in this condition, do three things. They follow the course of this world, follow the prince of the power of the air, and live in the passions of our flesh. That's a lot to work through. What he's saying is, just at a high level, we're all constantly being influenced by three things. The world, the devil, and our own flesh. 
when he talks about the world, he's just talking about the, the system around us which has no regard for God. We think about the things that the world values. What is the average person? What is, do, do you, just apart from God, what kind of things do you desire, value, seek? Think of power and influence, status, success, comfort, pleasure. The list goes on. The world doesn't have regard for God, so life becomes all about our own pursuits. Climbing the ladder. And maybe for you that doesn't look like corporate success, but just building a good family on a good foundation, however you would define that. It says those who are spiritually dead live according to the ways of the world, which means we just go with the flow of the way the world goes. A world that has no regard for God. We follow the course of the world. And then he says, we follow the prince of the power of the air, which is a really colorful and metaphor-filled way of saying, the devil is real and present and active. And he has influence over those who don't have the spirit of God within them. He has influence over the world. Which isn't to say that every unbeliever is demon-possessed. But it is to say that we are all under the influence, that we're living in a world that is under, in part, his domain by God's allowance. And we can be tempted and influenced. And you think that seems really far fetched because when I think of the devil, I think if I saw him, I would know him, <laughs> right? I don't think I'm influenced by him. Well, we can go back to the Garden of Eden and we recognize that the ways of the devil are subtle. And the way he works is often by taking good things, seemingly, and tempting us. There may be places and ways in your life in which you do not recognize his influence. And for those of us who are, those who are not in Christ, this is a way of life. Following the ways of the world. Living under the influence of the evil one. And third, and maybe the most dangerous, he says, we live in the passions of our flesh, verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, which is to say, we just do what comes naturally. And if we were all essentially good, then what comes naturally may be good, but the Bible tells us we're all essentially evil. What comes naturally is evil. The Bible tells us clearly the kinds of things that come naturally. In Galatians 5, it says the works of the flesh, the things that come naturally from the flesh, that we do naturally, it gives this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, worshiping anything other than God, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The world says we're naturally good, but the scriptures say, left to ourselves, these are our natural inclinations. And now some of these are the extreme outworkings of things that start very small. 
it all comes down to this. We seek to please ourselves. We want what we want and we run after it. When we don't get it, we sin even more. Do you notice that list things like jealousy? I want what he has. Anger, when I don't get what he has, I react. Think of James chapter 4. He says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Been there? I want what I want, and I don't get it. It happens in my house all the time. I bet it does in yours too. You don't have, he says, because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In our flesh, we want all the wrong things, and we want it for our own reasons. And here's the point. Remember I told you the two things? You're thinking, where are you going? We needed to be saved because this is who we are naturally. Guided by the world, guided by the devil, guided by the flesh. This is the way of life apart from Christ. And sadly, like my friend Mario, most people don't even recognize this about themselves. That they're simply following the way of the world, following the way of the devil, following the way of self. And the Bible tells us that the end of that way is death. Eternal separation from God. In fact, it's the experience of the wrath of God which is what we see in the end of verse 3. It says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Which doesn't mean that we were all angry children. No, it means that our parent, we have this close relationship with judgment. What's he saying? We were all born under the wrath of God, like the rest of mankind. It's a way of saying that every one of us deserves the judgment of God for our sins because we live according to the ways of the world and the ways of the devil and the ways of the flesh. And all those who remain in their sin will experience the wrath of God. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe, that every person this is our fate apart from Christ. And when you hear all that, it can be very easy to say, I don't know that I fit that category. My parents were good. My neighborhood was relatively good. I think I've been relatively good. But what you have to recognize is that Paul isn't describing some rare subgroup of people. He's describing every person who's ever been born. He's describing our true nature. This is your story and mine. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm not telling you this is who you were only. I'm saying this is who we are, were, apart from Christ. And there are many who are still in that position. What's our need? We need to be rescued from the condition in which we were born. 
How can we ever go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive? Because I've already told you, dead people can't do things. How can we be saved? We can be thankful that verse 4 starts with the word but. We have this transition. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The question is, how can a person who's spiritually dead go to a place of spiritually alive? And the answer is this, God. (laughs) It's a work of God, which begs another question. Why would a God who's perfectly holy and perfectly just and who's been sinned against repeatedly, continuously by sinful men, why would he have mercy? Why does God save sinners? The answer is deep and simple. Unfathomable, and yet right here in black and white. He is rich in mercy and great in love. The passage says we were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy and great in love. He doesn't say he is merciful or he is loving. He says, no, he's rich in mercy. He's great in love. Consider the depth of our sin. Consider how much we deserve the wrath of God. Think about how much mercy that takes. How much love that demands. One of my favorite passages, Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So consider our situation, everything we've just said about who we were and what we've done. And who shows up? What shows up? The goodness and the kindness of God says, he saved us. It's one of those passages where we get that word. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why does God save sinners? Because he is rich in mercy and great in love. If you're in Christ, this is your story, that even while you were dead in trespasses and sins, God, because of his mercy, because of his love, has made you alive. How do we go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive? It's a work of God. God gives life. How does he do that? We were guilty. We were sinful. We deserved his wrath. If God is just, how does he do this? Two very important words at the end of that verse. With Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Which again, we have to zoom out and know the bigger story of Scripture. This is how God saves us. He came to earth. He sent his son to live the perfect life. To die on the cross, a sacrificial death. And then to rise again, defeating death and sin. And and the Bible tells that anyone who recognizes the work that Christ has done, 
on their behalf, accepting the wrath of God for them. If we repent of our sins, we will be saved. This is what Brian read for us earlier. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Think about this. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would die. But God showed his love for us and that while we were sinners, rebels, enemies, Christ died for us. And because Christ died, we can be saved. Colossians chapter 2 has a passage that's in very and in many ways parallel to Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A lot of parallel there. I especially rejoice over that last part because we've said that before salvation, we walked according to the ways of the prince of the power of the air. But you see what he says there about what Christ does over Satan? He says he disarms him in regards to those who are his. He puts them to open shame, triumphing over them. This is the work that God does in Christ, and it's applied to us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then we have a parenthesis. There's no parenthesis in Greek, but there's no other way to to see it. But there's a parenthesis. He says, by grace, you have been saved. And he goes on with his train of thought. He comes back to it. So we'll come back to it also. But what he plugs in right here is this recognition that you didn't deserve this. You've been made alive by grace. It's a gift you couldn't have earned. There's a series of three things. First, he makes us alive. Second, he raises us up. It's the picture of Christ dying and raising from the dead. And in the same way, he makes us alive and then he raises us up. It's a picture we get in Romans chapter 6. A lot of scripture this morning, but it's important for us to see how the Bible really, this is the big story. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Maybe you've heard this phrase, union with Christ. So we're talking about here that we've been united with Christ so that as he died, our dead man died. <laughs> Our sinful flesh died, and as he was raised from the dead, we've been raised, right now, spiritually raised to new life. And on the final day, raised in every way, resurrected to new life. 
He made us alive. He raised us up. And then in verse 6, he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which means not only are we alive, but we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. In a sense, we are already with him, reigning with him until that day when we will be joined with him forever. I know for many of you, these are truths that are familiar. Can I confess something? This is the greatest truth. And yet, some of the hardest messages for me to preach because I feel like we all know these things. And I'm not a very good pep rally leader. But I don't think I should have to be if we really understand what's going on here. Right? We were dead and we've been made alive. We were children of wrath and now we're sons of God. And this isn't metaphorical religious talk. This is what we believe is reality. That spiritually we are seated with him in heavenly places should stop us in our tracks. What kind of mercy is this? What kind of grace is this? What kind of love is this? Why would God stoop so low? Why would God save people who had so blatantly sinned against him? Verse 7 gives us some insight. It says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does he show us grace? So that later on he can show us more. And in doing so, can show his glory. If you read through chapter 1, at least three times we see this phrase, to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. And even if you've never read Ephesians 1, maybe you know the song we sing. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your glorious grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. It's a theme that's repeated over and over in chapter 1, and I think this verse, chapter, or verse 7, continues that thought. Why does God save us? So that he might show us more grace and more kindness. He does the work of our salvation. He gets the glory. He's the one worthy of the praise. And we should be quick to celebrate and to worship and to thank him, which is why today is so special. But we must know this. You must know this. Today isn't a celebration of anything Nicholas has done. It's a celebration of the work of God. God is the one who takes dead and gives life to the praise of his glory. So far we've seen our need. We've considered the God of salvation. And then Paul transitions to how it's applied. The way we're saved. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. We were dead, verse 1. Verse 5, we've been made alive. 
Throughout the passage, we're told that it's because of his mercy, love, grace, and kindness. And grace is the word that Paul uses most often to communicate what we've received. Grace is when we're giving something we don't deserve. Side note, mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is when we do get what we don't deserve. By grace you have been saved. It's not because of what you've done. It's a gift. All the more glory to God. What is faith? It says we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is trust, it's confidence, it's belief. And we receive God's grace by faith, by trusting Him, by believing in Him. Again, something we see throughout the Scriptures. Galatians 2, verse 15. We ourselves are, this is Paul writing, Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified, not made right with God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order that in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We're saved by faith through grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not in right standing with God. And you say, what do I do? The answer is to trust him, to believe in him, to have faith in the work that he has done. And yet what we see here is that even faith isn't a work that we do, but it's a gift of God. If you have faith, it's a gift that God has given you, not a work that you've done to earn his favor. When God gives life, he grants faith so we can receive his grace. It's a passage about God, what God does to save people. It's a passage telling us that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The first, perhaps most common misunderstanding when it comes to our position before God is that we're all born relatively good and the goal is just to maintain that goodness or to get back to that goodness. We've already talked about that. Here's the second biggest misunderstanding, in my opinion. That the way we get right with God is through what we do. If we get, live a good life, if our good outweighs our bad, if we're generally kind and don't do anything too awful, then God will accept us. Which is super common, isn't it? That somehow we can earn God's favor. But what we should know is because of who you were, dead in sin, you can't do enough. Coming to church won't do it. Dressing or talking a certain way won't do it. Knowing what it means to be saved, that vocabulary, knowing the right words doesn't do it. Giving to the poor won't do it. Helping the needy won't do it. Hear this, being baptized won't do it. We're not saved because we get wet. We're saved because God makes us alive. By His grace we've been saved. Through faith, it's not of ourselves. I should read Titus 3 again. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's what happens. He shows up 
and we're saved, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We are saved by him, by his work, for good works, which is what we see in the last verse. We are his workmanship. Is it our works that save? No, it's God's work. We are his workmanship. He does the work. How? Created in Christ Jesus. He does the work. How does he do the work? He does it through Christ for good works. There's a lot there. God does the work through Christ so that we can do good works. Maybe, you, maybe that's the question. Okay, you've told me that we can't do anything good. Why all the commands? We don't do good to get saved because we're saved. We do good. We have good works. And guess what? Even still, you're not doing it. It says there in the verse, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all of him from beginning to end. He saves us. He enables us to live for him. At the beginning, it says that we walked in trespasses and sins, and now we're told that in him we can walk in good works. Earlier, we read about the works of the flesh. If we go back to Galatians 5, we read of the works of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. This is the fruit of the Spirit. God in us produces these things. Again, it's all of Him. If you see any change in your life, that's the work of God. That is a very brief overview of Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. So much to be mined there, but... The big idea is this. We all had a need that we could not meet. But God, because of his character, because of who he is, has made us alive. And one of my greatest fears for us as a church, why I told you this is one of the harder messages I feel like I have to preach, not because I don't understand it or that you don't understand it, but because it can seem really ordinary. My fear is that we would take for granted what has been done. That we would minimize the need that we have or somehow give ourselves too much credit for what we think we have done. We could fail to recognize the miracle that it is to go from death to life. When someone is baptized, this is what we're proclaiming. God has taken someone who is dead and made them alive taken someone who was walking in the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and enabled them to walk in good works. Taken a son of disobedience and a child of wrath and shown them rich mercy and great love, determining to glorify himself through kindness and grace. Friends, we are not here to celebrate a good decision or some level of moral excellence. We're here to praise God for his gift of mercy. And grace. Maybe you're thinking, okay, now what do I do? I come to church so you can tell me what we're supposed to do. 
And maybe this text this morning isn't so much about what we do, but what we see. Remembering who we were and what he's done, which should lead us to many things. It should lead us to gratitude and to worship and to good works and to proclamation. I think it's important to say this. Salvation is all of God. God changes hearts. And yet, he has told us that salvation comes through the response of faith, which he gives, but we're told in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, which means we are called as his people to proclaim. And it's through the telling, whether it's you and your neighbor or you and your coworker or in a room like this, it's when the word of God is proclaimed, God uses that proclamation to create a response of faith. God does it all, but he uses us. So church, know that these things are true of you and that verses 1 through 3 is true of most people you know. And God's plan is to use your speaking of the gospel as the means through which he gives the gift of faith. This is our story. We were dead and he has made us alive. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation to be received at the last time. Praise God for his salvation.